Welcome to our listeners in the North, South, East, and West. We are Educa K16 Podcast, bringing distinguished guests with a wealth of knowledge and expertise to cultivate curiosity and provide educational advice and best practices to move the education conversation momentum forward. The pandemic took us to distance learning. More and more students are enrolling in online learning. Stay in the now with Educa K16. Last week, our listeners, you remember, we interviewed Tony Bias from Milwaukee Public Schools, board member, challenging the norms, a real mover and shaker in higher in K-12 and uh, building bridges to higher education. Educa K-16 and our conversation continues today to be higher education. This week with two special guests, Margarita Benitez and Ricardo Fernandez. Shout outs before we continue, before my co-host Abdin introduces our guests. Shout outs to Jose Carlos from Vottles doing our post-production. DTO Music, raising the planet's energy. And to Arterezón for the Educa K16 podcast logo. Welcome, welcome, Dr. Noboa. Welcome as co-host. Thank you. It's a pleasure once again. This time we have two luminaries in higher education, obviously both doctorates, plus plus. Uh, and let me just begin with Dr. Ricardo Fernandez, who was the longest serving president of Lehman College for over 26 years. And Ricardo originally goes back to the University of Wisconsin, where he was a professor. And he was also the executive director for about a decade for the desegregation Lao Center, the Lao Desegregation Center, as it was known, uh, some time back. Among other uh, distinctions, he probably serves on more boards than any person I know in higher education, at least the Latinos uh, that I know in higher education. So uh, you name the organization, Ricardo knows the ABCs about it. So it's a pleasure to have you, Ricardo. Y la doctora Margarita Benitez, who is residing in Puerto Rico de Nuevo. Uh, Margarita now is the chief executive officer of the Puerto Rican Endowment for the Humanities, one of a number of charter uh, organizations and, and the Endowment of the Humanities throughout the country. And she now represents the one in Puerto Rico. And uh, prior to that, she was also uh, Director of Leadership Development for the ACE, American Council on Education, and with many other distinctions prior to that, but one of them being Chancellor for the University of Puerto Rico at Calle and a little bit at Humacao in Puerto Rico. So Margarita has gone from Puerto Rico to the U.S. and back to Puerto Rico. And so we welcome her also as part of this panel. Both of them have distinguished uh, backgrounds and we will have a little short bio and photos of each of them as part of the Dumas uh, website in, in, the, in the future so you can get to know them. But without further ado, back to you, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Noboa. To our listeners who just tuned in, we are Educa K16 Podcast, and we're discussing the topic of higher education in the U.S. 
You can find us at D-O-M-A-S-G-R-O-U-P.com, Educa K-16 YouTube channel. We're also on Spotify and Anchor. My distinguished co-host is Dr. Noboa. I am his number one fan and advocate. He has written two books. He has written The Story of Latinos and Education in American History and Critical Issues of Latinos and Education in 21st Century America. Where are we? Why, why, why did he do that? Listeners, oh, by the way, you can purchase the books on Amazon.com. Why did he write these books? Well, for many, many reasons. And um, most importantly, in 2014-15 academic year in America, in the United States, pre-K through 12 public school enrollment became majority non-white. Yes, you heard it right. So my distinguished co-host, Dr. Novoa, wrote these two books and here we are today at Educa K-16, distilling information with two special guests. Dr. Noboa previously interviewed for his own research to support his findings on his books. So again, purchase the books on amazon.com. It's a pleasure to come back into the area of higher education. There's lots to be said about higher education and we have 10,000 questions, but we have limited time. So one of them is the enigma that some of us are wrestling with right now. We're perplexed. Two things are happening in higher education for the Latino student. One is that we applaud the fact and they are excited about the fact that over the past five to seven years, many more Latinos, many more Hispanics have entered higher education, breaking records like never before. Yet at the same time, there seems to be a bit of a, of, of, of a dilemma in that we have a very high, a very low percentage of Latinos in higher education, whether it's at the level of staff, administrative staff, or at the level of associate and full professors. So two things are happening. We have many more students but we still have a stagnant number of Latinos in the higher education administration and instructorship. So the question is, and this is gonna continue, what's happening? Well, where are we going? Why is this occurring? Uh, help us understand a little bit more about these two trends that don't seem to be in the same direction. And I open it up to Ricardo and Margarita um, for them to respond and give us some perspective. Margarita, Gracias. I'd like to highlight the fact that there are a number of distinguished Latinos in positions of responsibility in charge of either higher education or the full spectrum of education. Certainly in the East Coast, we have Carlos Santiago, in Massachusetts, as senior commissioner for higher education, we have Noe Ortega in Pennsylvania. We have a significant presence in, in New Jersey. So in that respect, I think that there has been, and of course at CUNY, we have a Puerto Rican chancellor, Felo Matos, I never thought I'd live to see the day. So in that respect, there has been, I think, a significant increase in positions of influence and those leaders are themselves moving on 
to open doors for others. Consider, for instance, Mildred Garcia, who's been president of a number of institutions, both in the East and the West Coast, and who now heads ASCU. So in that respect, I would celebrate a number of Latinos in significant positions and trust, because we all have the good fortune of knowing them well, that they are opening doors for others, for younger generation. I would add to that that um, it takes many years to develop a pipeline. Uh, we, we have had significant numbers of Latinos <clears throat> enrolled in college and first they need to graduate and then go through the training required for entry into the faculty ranks and into the administrative ranks. It's hard to um, uh, know how many people are in the pipeline. It's hard to measure that. But clearly, given the enrollments that we have experienced in this country uh, of Latinos at four-year institutions and private institutions as well, there is a significant number of people. Most of them are not very well known. We do have a limit in terms of the uh, people who are formally picked to participate in in some pipeline programs like the ACE Fellows Program that generally picks very few Latinos. But there are other ways of remedying that or addressing that. And I know that HACU has one of the, um, one of the programs. They're trying to develop some of that talent that's out there. That's in the middle ranks of, of administration, but it's gradually moving on. And I'm pleased to say that they're making some progress in spite of the pandemic. And let me, let me interject in terms of HACU, which is the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities working primarily or strongly with the HSIs, Hispanic Serving Institutions. There had been questions in terms of how does the HSI compare to the HBCUs, uh, which is, and are, they, are these counterparts and what's going on in terms of the Latino population in higher education? and the African-American population in higher education. Um, so, Ricardo, I know you've been involved uh, somewhat with HACU in the past. Um, help us understand that dichotomy, if there is a dichotomy or difference. Well, you know, the, the conversation as to HACU and HBCUs goes back several decades. Uh, I was a member of the board of HACU in the mid-90s. And I recall uh, the conversations, and some of them were um, difficult conversations in terms of the need to establish a separate funding source to provide for the increasing numbers of Latino students. And I remember, uh, I remember distinctly a meeting in which uh, Representative Hinojosa at, the, at that point had a really tough conversation with one of the uh, African-American representatives in Congress. And eventually, you know, it was, it was resolved. And the, the HSI, the idea of HSIs was finally accepted and became part of law. And for the first time, a very modest amount of money uh, came into uh, play, which I know because Lehman was one of the first schools that applied and received some funding. That funding was critical to develop 
opportunities to hire more faculty and to provide more services to, to students. So, but that conversation has continued. The, the program has increased significantly. And I know that under the Biden administration, there have been some uh, significant increases, not only to HBCUs, which is as should be, but also to HSIs. And if I may, Abdin, I was a I was a witness and a participant in those discussions because that was at the time of the approval of Title V for the higher education uh, bill. Mm -hmm. And at that point, our compatriot, Claudio Prieto, you might recall, was Assistant Secretary, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Postsecondary Education. There ensued a very bitter fight indeed, because at one point, both minority groups were pitted against each other. And the discussion was whether what went to one meant that the other would miss out. And that is, of course, a terrible conversation to have. It leads to the discussion of who has suffered more and who deserves more funding. And that is really a terrible, a terrible thing. So in that respect, let's not forget that the definition of historically black college specifically limits the number to a certain period in American history, yes. with only the exception of the UDC, the University of the District of Columbia. But every, every other school must have been established around before or around the time of the Civil War. And there is a, a cutoff date that I don't recall right now, but there's certainly one. So that's an important difference because in the case of HSIs, as we know, it's enrollment that determines your HSI status, at least in front of the federal government. And that means that the number of HSIs can, and indeed has, grown from an initially less than 100, most of which were in our homeland of Puerto Rico, to over 500 now, and growing. So in that respect, that is a, a very important difference. Mm -hmm. The other one being that the historically black colleges get formula funding in terms of size and other considerations, whereas in the case of uh, HSIs, Title V funding is competitive, competitive grants. There's no way to fund every HSI at every, every year like the HBCUs are funded. But the most important mm -hmm. thing, in my view, is to, to underline the significance of both groups of institutions in the development of the groups that they serve, but also of other groups because when we talk about the impact that HBCUs have had or that HSIs have had, we're not only talking about the African-American or the Hispanic population. We're talking about the populations of that region and of those needs. So in that respect, it's very important to be aware of the differences, but also of the basic mission similarities and of the importance of collaboration among these minority-serving institutions. That's, that's a very important point, if I may, just quickly. From 139 institutions in 94, 95, 569 institutions in 2019, 2020. And I think for, for more information on all of this, please go to the website of Excelencia, which has a very comprehensive uh, set of research studies and data that anyone interested in this topic can find. 
thank you for that. We will put that on our on our website and we will also put it on the YouTube channel. For the listeners that just tuned in, we are Duga K16 and a very interesting conversation continues on higher education. Dr. Benitez has uh, stated how she has seen an increase of Latinos in positions of influence in higher education and celebrates these Latinos who are in significant positions, opening doors to the younger generations. We are talking with Dr. Fernandez who mentions how it takes many years to develop a pipeline and mentioned that the HACU program is doing a great job to develop young Latino talent. We're also talking about funding and how important funding is and we see increases to HBCUs and HSIs, the differences and similarities. Let's talk a little bit now about the university education, post-secondary education. I'd love for each of you to comment on what is happening. What do students do after receiving their high school diplomas? I mean, the pandemic has also put a little bit of a new uh, wrench in the whole thing. Like, so we've gone online, distance learning, and, and now what? Like what's happening to our students who receive their high school diplomas? We know there are many more options in education, right? So but, and, does it have to be that they get a bachelor's degree or what, what can happen to students? One of the things, that, let me add to that, um, Sandra, that <clears throat> I've been hearing a lot is confusion. Uh, and, and I go back to even my many cousins right now of that younger generation. Confusion between what do I do now that I have a high school diploma? Should I go into higher education, a traditional university education, or are the post-secondary options that are just as good, if not even better, for some of us in terms of going alternatively to a nun, to post-secondary education, but not necessarily university education? And a lot of our Latinos are wrestling with this. Uh, and we have a very large number of Hispanics who are now in two-year institutions rather than four-year institutions or community colleges, as some of us would call it. Uh, that factor, that change, uh, which is going to continue much more so now subsequent to the pandemic, is, 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 is a bit of a, of a, of a major area of sometimes even confusion among youngsters about where do I go? Um, should I continue in higher education or not? And so given our numbers and the fact that we are increasing geometrically in the United States, how do the two of you see some of this dilemma between higher education, traditional versus anything else post-secondary? Well, let me, let me uh, share with you a couple of, of data points. Um, currently, only 20% of all the students in higher education fit the 18 to 22-year-old category. The majority, the new majority of students in higher education is from 25 to 34. So these people cannot afford to go to school full-time in many cases. Uh, 
many of them have indeed enrolled in community colleges to pursuing shorter degrees, uh, associate degrees in some cases, or credentials, other types of certificates, other types of training that enable them to get into the workforce that has been transformed completely. And of course, new technologies make possible online programs and much more flexibility for people who have significant obligations, maybe have incurred already some significant debt, which is a major problem today in higher education. I, I, I read the other day that there's $1.7 trillion in debt of students in higher education currently. That's more than credit card debt for the whole country to give you a sense of the magnitude of this. So people are looking for quicker ways and for uh, less expensive ways and uh, to, to get some training that would enable them to get a foothold in the workforce and then expand that into a, a, maybe a two-year degree or a four-year degree or maybe beyond that and get become more qualified for more professional uh, uh, positions. So it's a changed world completely compared to when I went to college many, many years ago. Dr. Benitez, how about you? What should students do after well, receiving I have to their high school diploma today? Making clear that I am a child of the university. I was born and raised at the University of Puerto Rico. So in that respect, feel free to discount <laughs> if not half 20% of what I'm going to say. But, uh, and I'm so glad that Ricardo <laughs> outlined the features of today's students. It's, we used to call them non-traditional students, but now that they have become the majority, I prefer to use the term that my good friend Jamie Marisotis coined, students of the 21st century. Because they, they do have a different uh, demographic profile and age profile. So in that respect, the expectations of a full-time college experience <clears throat> complete with a junior year abroad or travel and so forth are, are unrealistic. Even so, I want to underscore the point that in terms of salary and of work opportunities and of lifting yourself out of poverty, a high school diploma is not, not sufficient won't do. And the higher your academic credentials, the better chance you have for a better life. For a better life in terms of salary and also in mm -hmm. terms of stimulation and growth and development. So in that respect, let's not give up on diplomas and on academic achievement, but let us realize, as Ricardo was pointing out, that many of the students today cannot afford full-time a full-time college education or cannot put together four years of their life or six years of their life devoted to education, that they have to do it piecemeal, that they have to do it as best they can. And they, they deserve our encouragement and our support. And I did want to mention that <clears throat> as Abdin's book documents the growth of the Latino population in higher education, it also documents the still high dropout rates for Latinos. And I want to underscore that it's not sufficient to admit students. Retention is absolutely key. And the support 
especially for students who are not mm -hmm. traditional students or who have not been to college in a while or who have, you know, all, all kinds of other commitments. Daycare mm -hmm. for the children of mm -hmm. students, for instance, is, is a necessity. It's just a, a fact of life. Otherwise, people are not going to be able to, con to continue. And uh, extended hours, you cannot close your counseling services at 4.30 in the afternoon because a lot of people are just getting out of work then, not only the counselors, and they need guidance and assistance and support. So in that respect, I think if we want to serve students well, we must meet them where they are and we must see what their needs are and how the institution can enable them and how their peers can support them and give them hope that this is possible, that it can be done. So in that respect, I still you know, hang my hat at the university door, where I fully realize the complexities and the changes that have taken place in the recent years. Thank you both. Wow, you're hearing it here at Educa K-16 podcast and YouTube channel. Students of the 21st century have a different demographic profile, different salary work opportunities. And as Dr. Benitez just stated, um, I hear a call to action from what you stated, Dr. Benitez, that universities, higher education colleges, they need to support the retention of students. It's not enough to accept a student, but to support the retention of students, we need to create safety nets around them, right? So don't go home at the time, counselors don't go home at the time that students are coming in, right? To, to work from work into, uh, into their classes and they need advising, et cetera, et cetera. Very important, interesting conversation. Dr. Noboa, put it in perspective for us. <laughs> There's a lot, there's a lot here. I, I, I'm not sure that I can do justice to the process, but uh, one thing that I have been talking about for some time and certainly underscored in my books is that the future of America is inextricably linked to the prosperity and the education of the Latino student. Why? Because of the demographic shift that we are seeing right now and the expansive growth of the Latino population. So entering into the workforce is critical. And as Latinos continue to grow and prosper, the area of post-secondary education, which is going through its own transformation and change, needs to be looked at very, very carefully and possibly a little bit differently. But that's our future. And <laughs> not just the Latino future, but the future of America becomes a very critically important topic that we need to continue to concentrate and talk about and better understand. Um, distinguished guests, in one minute or less, can you give advice to our listeners if they are students or be it policymakers? What advice do you have for them? Don't give up. We'll start with you, Dr. It can Anita. be done. It must be done. And it will be done for your benefit and for our country. Don't give up. One of the uh, beauties of American education, certainly higher education, is that there are many pathways 
to travel. And the fact that you start in one area and then you can switch to something else beyond that. Uh, in some countries in Europe, it's very difficult. Once you get on the particular pathway, you're stuck there and you can't shift. We have been able to design a system that allows for change. So keep pushing. I agree with uh, my good friend Margarita that there are multiple ways of getting there, but you must continue to do that. This has significant national implications. The 60% uh, college attainment is necessary for the United States to stay competitive with countries like China that have invested hundreds of billions of dollars in higher education. And places like Korea and Japan and many countries in Europe have a higher number of college graduates than we have. In a new economy that relies high, uh, greatly on technology, we need people with higher skills. So um, I think that there are many opportunities out there. Not everybody has to go into specific fields, although we do need people in STEM fields and so on. We need people in humanities. We need people in, in the social sciences. So no matter what field you pick, stay with it. Thank you so much. Dr. Novoa, how about you? In one minute or less, what's a good advice to give to our listeners? The one word that I have learned, and I learned it from my daughter, is perseverance. Perseverance is key. And so never give up, as Margarita has said. And uh, keep at it. Keep at it. And I, uh, I have met a good number of doctorates who were once dropouts and went back to school. And so there's a lot of learning there. And so as Ricardo said, continue, persevere, never give up on the process. And there are many entryways and there are many opportunities and we need to reach all of them and make the most of it. Thank you so much to my co-host, Dr. Abdignawa Rios, our special distinguished experts leading experts in the nation, Dr. Ricardo Fernandez, Dr. Margarita Benitez. We are Educa K-16. Look for us at domasgroup.com. We are also Educa K-16 YouTube channel. We are on Spotify and Anchor. Stay tuned next week as we start talking about parent engagement. Thank you. Gracias. Great.